I invite you to turn with me to uh, Judges, the book of Judges. We're looking at chapter three today. <coughs> As you can already tell from my uh, coughing, and uh, I'm not the most exuberant person in the world to begin with, but my somewhat even more uh, curtailed uh, energy level today, uh, I have had hands down the worst illness I have had in my entire life this week. Uh, starting Monday night, a, a, a joyous adventure of, uh, of uh, chills and aches and fever and chest cough and sort of delusional haze that's kind of still hanging out right here. We'll see how that works this morning. But um, so, you know, and then between Monday lunch and yesterday lunch, had delighted myself over the course of the week in a delicious bowl of oatmeal, a can of soup, and a can of mandarin oranges. So, you know, I, I did eat dinner last night or something resembling it. So feeling pretty spry today, folks, pretty spry today. So bear with me. We do have abbreviated message as we uh, head to this congregational meeting time. But uh, but I'm excited about what we're going to take a look at in Judges chapter three. We'll look at verses seven through uh, thirty one. And let me um, Remind us again of what we've discussed the last couple of weeks. We just started this series two weeks ago um, that the book of Judges, <coughs> like other places in the Old Testament and, and in the Bible, is removed from us by at least three barriers, time, geography and culture. And yet one of the exciting things about uh, the book of Judges and other books in the Bible is that it offers incredibly relevant points for our lives today, for our spiritual walk, for our personal life. There's a lot here, even though we've got to get over a few hurdles to kind of get to it. Two weeks ago, we, you know, some of those themes that we've, we've looked at already. Uh, two weeks ago, the uh, call for God's people to finish conquering the land, going into the land that God had given to them. And we saw that they, they didn't achieve that. And in their minds, they didn't achieve it because they could not. And God said to them, no, it was really that you would not. And that's relevant to each one of us in our walk with the Lord. We have things that we know we ought to be doing. And we think, oh, God, I can't do that. And it wasn't that they needed to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and figure out how to do it. It was that they, they had the opportunity to trust in him, to draw on his whole power. To, to pursue it. So could not versus would not. We've kind of looked at that theme. And then last week we uh, were introduced in chapter 2 to this cycle. And in the back of the worship guide, if you want to look there, you can. There's a, a little outline, in fact, of that uh, cycle, a, a circle that you have. In fact, I'll turn to it myself and, and mention some of, the, some of the elements of it because we really haven't looked at it together. But it looks like this. And it just reminds us that the biblical message is that God rescues his people. He raises up a, a, a deliverer. Israel is delivered, I'm sorry. And then, and then Israel's at peace. They enjoy a relationship with God. In the Old Testament, they have a land and a, a leadership as well. So they enjoy the blessings of all of those things. But then Israel drifts. Israel forgets. Israel walks away. And Israel is just the people of God in the Old Testament. And then Israel is oppressed, usually faces some kind of trouble or difficulty. Eventually, that drives them to cry out to God, say, OK, we need some help now. We realize we need some help. And then God raises up a deliverer. This is another one of those things that we see at work, probably in our lives on a weekly basis, if not um, a monthly basis. 
uh, pretty regularly. So we see that cycle, and we said one of the main ways that Israel forgets is by running to idols. Uh, not little statues necessarily, or the way that we emulate it today is not necessarily running to little statues, but by things that will give us security, will give us hope, will give us power or a sense of those things. And we run to those and we put them in place of God. We don't like to admit that we're drinking that deadly cocktail, you know, mixing those two things, uh, outward appearance of trusting in God, but in fact, real trust in whatever our idols are, but that's what we do. We mix them together and God's not really excited about that because when we're drinking that deadly cocktail, we're missing drinking the living water that is Jesus Christ. So we saw that last week and then today we're going to look at how this cycle starts to play out in real time with real people, real judges and real things happening. Let me go ahead and prepare you uh, because I know I've mentioned the violence in the book of Judges, which is not unique to the Old Testament. We see it other places as well. But uh, we're about to see that today in full, vivid form. If you haven't read Judges chapter 3 in a while, buckle up. It's got some interesting content for us. As you listen to the interesting content, though, let's not lose sight of the main message, which is this cycle that's taking place And how God sends a deliverer, and then in particular, I want you to look for this, how God likes to send an unlikely deliverer to rescue his people. So listen as I read uh, aloud for us uh, Judges chapter 3, verses 7 to 31. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Ashtoreth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of the Cushan Ritham, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served him eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rithiam, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over him. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. The people again did. The people of Israel again did what was. Evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Here's where it gets interesting. People of Israel cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised for up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, king of Moab. Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges and a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud 
had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all the attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. The hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull out the sword of, the, of, the, of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out onto the porch and closed the door of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors on the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. He had escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarai. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest 80 years. And then verse 31, after him was Shamgar, son of Anath who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad and also saved Israel. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would teach us uh, important things for our lives and our salvation uh, from this passage. And we pray that you would do that for uh, Jesus' sake and for his glory. In his name, amen. Well, in my uh, sleep-deprived state this last week, had that op- fun opportunity. You've been there, I'm sure, with some kind of illness or struggle. Up in the middle of the night, lots of fun things on TV, 2 o'clock. Channel flipping. Found a story about NFL receivers with the best hands. Top 10 best hands NFL receivers. Figured I'd watch it for a little while. And I was intrigued because... One of the guys they had on the list was a guy I'd really rooted for when I was little. Steve Largent played for the Seattle Seahawks. You guys maybe remember him. The, those of us above age 35 maybe remember him. Steve Largent, it was interesting because he was on the list. I thought that, that was cool. And then he was, he was actually a little higher on the list than I would have thought he, he would have been. I mean, think about all the receivers out there, and they all kind of sort of have good hands catching things. He was actually just below, interestingly enough, Raymond Berry, the uh, Hall of Famer uh, father of Mark Berry, the missionary who was with us just a few weeks ago. So it was interesting to see those two right together. But Steve Largent was interesting among that list 
because he was an unlikely guy really to be on it at all. And I didn't know about all this, but he, he had been drafted in the fourth round. And before he ever even got to play uh, one down, he got traded to the Seattle Seahawks, which was a step down for him because he got traded for an eighth-round draft pick. His stock was going down before he even started playing ball. But he was sort of relegated off to the Seahawks was the idea. It's interesting to note as well they had some of his teammates on there who sort of jokingly pointed out that, uh, number one, the guy looked more like a store clerk than he did like an NFL football player of any kind. Uh, some of the kickers were bigger than, than this guy was. And, uh, and they also noted that, that his, his speed was not very impressive. In a, in a straight line, uh, his former teammates joked about the fact that some of the linemen on the team could beat him in a, in a straight-out race. Uh, they even had Largent on the interview talking about the fact that he wasn't a very athletic guy. He really would not call himself athletic at all. It was fascinating then to uh, be reminded by the show that this guy, this unlikely guy, had ended up, when he retired at the time of his retirement, playing for some, I don't know, 12, 13 seasons for Seattle and being the all-time leading uh, receiver in the NFL in terms of number of catches caught. Look at our passage today. We look at this guy named Ehud, and if we can again... Uh, The story is interesting, and God has it in there for a purpose in our lives. But if we can sort of clear uh, past all the fat and the different things we just read about and the sword and the hilt and whatnot, uh, I think what we're going to see is actually this. And that is that the main point is not just that Ehud was successful or that he was some kind of assassin that achieved this, this grand goal for Israel, but that he did it. As an unlikely person to do so. Okay, we're going to get to that in just a minute. Before we uh, move to that point, it'll help us to realize that this is actually introducing Ehud as an unlikely redeemer, unlikely rescuer, somebody you wouldn't expect, is introducing a theme that we're going to see all throughout the book of Judges. Deborah, we'll look at and study next week. Deborah was unique in the fact that it was basically an all-male military culture, and she's going to be the military might, the military leader for them as a woman. We'll see with Gideon in uh, just a couple of weeks that Gideon was a guy who, you know, we, if you know the story of the fleece and so forth and whatnot, uh, the reason he needed the fleece so he didn't trust God. He didn't believe God's word, what God said to him. And so that's why the fleece was there. And it's an interesting concept for how to discern God's will. But it's actually a strike against Gideon. And then Gideon wasn't just a guy who, uh, you know, sort of in general knew about idols. His family had idols set up at their residence, basically, that he had to go and knock down and destroy. So he's not your all-star sort of spiritual leader. And then uh, going on beyond that as well, we see the the creme de la creme that we'll get to probably in a month and a half or so, Samson. Samson looks like uh, a guy that's looking for the nearest nightclub to pick up uh, some ladies more than he looks like a person that's going to redeem God's people. So this idea that salvation is going to come from an unlikely place, an unlikely person is a key message here. 
Well, if you want to follow along with me, you can in the sermon notes section in the back of your worship guide. There's a couple of things uh, mentioned there that I've laid out for you. A couple of key points. One, and they may not even be in there. You might want to write these in. Number one is this idea of forgetting God. Again, we see this as part of the cycle of God's people. We see it in verse 7 of Judges 3. And what that means is not that they didn't know anymore what the Bible said or that there's this idea of God. It means that it no longer mattered in their heart and in their lives. They forgot God. That's a key part of this cycle. We talked about that a little bit last week. The second thing we see is that God often brings or allows trouble. He lets difficulty come into the lives of the people. That's something he does in our lives as well. He often permits that in there so that we can become sensitive to something to be reawakened, realive, and to spiritual things. Now, if you're in Christ, it's really important to remember that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so that's why the Bible tells us that, that when the Lord disciplines us, allows trouble for us, He's doing it as a father to a son because he cares for us, in fact. And it's in some ways similar to what's happening in Judges. He wants to reawaken them. He wants them to come back to them. His goal isn't for them to move away, but to come back to him as well. And so always a great question for us to be asking, what are those places in our lives where God's trying to draw us back to him? And it might be a different thing each time. Might be a physical challenge one time. Might be a relational struggle another time. Maybe it's a financial thing this time. Uh, in the Narnia series, I read this from one of the commentators on this passage. It's interesting. In the Narnia series, the C.S. Lewis, um, and I haven't read those books recently or even watched all the movies. I'm sure my kids have watched them 18 times. But the, uh, the way that the kids get into Narnia is different. Each time. So they go through the wardrobe one time. They go through what is their train or something another time. Y'all help me. So each way and what C.S. Lewis was trying to show there is that for, for us to kind of enter into the spiritual things of life, sometimes it's a different thing each time. And we're looking for it to happen over here for God to show us that way back. And really this time he's trying to wake us up through this this avenue over here. So we never know exactly how that's going to come into our lives, but when trouble comes, at any rate, whatever form, it's an opportunity, according to the Bible, to draw close to God. Number three, when we draw close to God, what that means for Christians is repentance. And we've talked a couple of times, even just the last few weeks, about repentance. It sounds like a, a bad word, kind of a, a begrudging sort of thing, but in the Bible, it's actually a lifestyle. It's actually a wonderful way to be because we see that we need help We're in constant need of renewal from God. And the only way to get there is repentance first. And then the fourth thing, and this is where I want us to camp out. And we're just going to spend really uh, four or five more minutes on this and then we'll land the plane. Uh, is this idea of the unlikely rescue that God provides for his people? Ehud's an interesting guy. Did you notice uh, what it said about him that made him unique and unlikely? Left-handed. Makes a real point of that. Now, you know, left-handed in, in our culture just 
makes you in a certain percentage of the population, I guess. In the ancient world, think, think about all the biblical passages about uh, where Jesus sits and where God's power comes from and where, uh, you know, all of those sorts of things are located at God's right hand. Okay, so left-handedness, and, and some of y'all may have even, uh, who have a little bit of gray hair perhaps, can remember, I know others have told me that growing up in elementary school, even in America, maybe 60s, 70s, there was a culture of trying to uh, change your, your, your handedness. If you were left-handed, they tried to make you right-handed. So it wasn't just you had the unfortunate desk where you had to reach over. They were trying to make you switch and change the way that, that you were. On the ancient world, this was viewed as what we might call a handicap or a limitation. And even more so, if you read it real closely, it doesn't come out as much in the English. But it seems like Ehud actually had some debilitation on his right hand. So he's forced to be left-handed. Now, what's interesting about all of that, of course, is it makes him a person that would be unlikely for folks to want to follow. That's probably why he has to go do this crazy assassination first before you notice all the people follow him. Do you notice Othniel? Othniel just, he's the judge. People gather together, they go to war. Ehud's got to go fight the battle or fight the, the king first before people get fired up to get behind him. He's an unlikely a rescuer for God's people. And yet God uses that. Now, here's the final sort of concluding point that we can take from this. It would be easy to sort of draw the self-centered application, which is not a a bad one or self-directed, maybe is a better way to put it, that, okay, God can use you and me, even though we have limitations. That's absolutely in the scriptures, that God's strength for us where we are weak. That's absolutely in the scriptures. The main point, though, I think, is to actually point us forward. And when we think about Deborah and Gideon and Samson as well, this is all pointing us forward to Christ. To Christ who isn't unlikely in his fallenness like Samson or unlikely in any sort of uh, physical malady like Ehud, but who's unlikely in where he comes from, that he's born in a manger. That he's basically fleeing from kings and rulers from the time he's born. That he comes out of Nazareth. You remember even his disciples when he calls some of them. Said, anything good come out of Nazareth? That can't be. That he was a man from Galilee. The scriptures say he was the stone the builders rejected. He was the lamb who was slain even right up before his crucifixion. People choose. He's so uh, unlikely in the sense that that, the people's response to him that they they choose a a condemned criminal to be released over him. Seems unlikely, too, that he would somehow be able to rescue you and me to do something monumental that continues to change the whole structure of humanity throughout history and will continue on into eternity through something as unlikely as dying on a cross, dying as a leader. That's the most unlikely sort of thing. That's what befuddled some people during the day. 
And then when the Holy Spirit came and God's power came and they saw that, oh, actually, he's fulfilled all of these promises about someone who would take our place pound and pound for pound for Chris Peters. He'd be a substitute. He'd take the death that I deserved. Oh, now I get it. Yes, it's unlikely. Yes, he seems to be coming from a strange direction, but he's exactly what you and I need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the way that it teaches for us crucial things for our walk with you. Even from passages like this that uh, on the surface are pretty tough for us to to understand and maybe even read. Lord, we thank you that your word is truth, that you grow us spiritually by your word. And we pray that you would do that in Jesus name. Amen.